Now, this is an episode written by Ronald D. Moore and directed by Cliff Ball. So yeah, this is a good episode, and it shows the attention to detail, the attention to just generally good storytelling and strong emphasis on... Well, I hate to call it this, but I don't have a better word. Continuity. Basically, this episode builds off of previous episodes in a big way. And wouldn't this is the kind of episode you couldn't do in season one of any show. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's instead the kind of episode you could only do at, like, season two or three, right? Because we need to have established these characters in order to understand how this is different or how this dynamic shakes things up. They do a good job of it. Um, but... I do want to mention one thing, which is kind of contradicted in the episode. One of the core story ideas that led to this, and this is, again, that continuity thing I mentioned earlier, is, if you remember, they already mentioned in a previous episode that the Maquis are becoming more and more of a threat. Bigger and bigger danger. And the Cardassians are having a harder and harder time dealing with them. This episode was intended to be the explanation for why, because of Thomas Riker that he has become the general, and that he is now leading them and guiding them, and he is sufficiently skilled, charismatic, and tactically uh, capable in order to make the Maquis actually efficient and be able to accomplish stuff. And I do like that idea quite a bit. Sadly, this idea is never really touched on in the future for reasons I'll get to later. Don't worry, we will get to it. In fact, it's the last thing I tend to talk about. But... I like that idea that Chakotay and, and their crew probably directly worked under Thomas Riker and probably had dealings with him and all that kind of fun stuff. I don't know. It's just an idea that I enjoy. Obviously, not an idea that's really been uh, carried forward, but what the heck ever. <sighs> Where in the world is that list? Sorry, I'm, I'm looking for a list here. It, it doesn't matter right now. First thing I want to talk about is it's, it's funny to me how the Federation is still colonizing. Despite everything, they're still doing the colonization thing, just reaching out into the wilds. Um, Kira, of course, comes across as wonderfully overworked. And I say wonderfully. It, it, she does a good portrayal of it is what I mean by that. Obviously, it's a bad thing. I wouldn't know anything about having to take time off in order to avoid losing your sanity or anything like that. I'm sorry. I know you don't understand this. This is my uh, second episode today, and this is a day which I also streamed. So, um, anyways, point being, <laughs> I like how she comes across as just super stressed, but what I love even more is the way that Bashir just nails the point quickly, and he's like, stop right there, and she's like, alright, I'm ready for the argument, I'm sorry I snapped, but instead he actually approaches her like someone who gives a damn. No, you need some time off. You need to go relax. And I love the way he does it. Here's a drink, here's some food, here's some holodeck time, which has been purchased for you. Here's some gambling chips. It th I, I demand that you thoroughly enjoy at least two of these, or we're going to do this again. I just like that approach, and it's very enjoyable. And then Riker shows up. <laughs> now, I have to give credit. Jonathan Frakes is a great guy in real life. He's very funny. He's very charismatic. So it makes sense that Riker, in basically all his presentations, is also very affable, charming, and charismatic. I like the idea, I know this sounds weird, that he and Kira really did just talk for three hours. That he could be that engaging, and that they could be that engaged in just chatting for that kind of period of time. And I want you to remember that, because they really did, according to Kira, and I believe this, they really did just talk for three hours. Keep that in the back of your mind, okay? Now... One thing that's mentioned is several people are like, you know, most of the people on the station seem to act like they have an idea who Riker is. 
I'm a little bit surprised he's not treated as more or less a literal legend. Maybe not quite to the extent of Picard or Kirk, but this is someone who quite literally beat the Borg. And you, right? Best of both worlds? Riker is not exactly a small figure in Federation lore. So I'm a little surprised more people aren't like, oh my god, it's William Riker. Anyways. Now they also have these extensive security protocols to get in. This is Ronald D. Moore in a nutshell right here, by the way. One of the things, I actually disagree with Moore on several key aspects, which I know sounds weird because I praise him all the time, but I do think he is a good writer, even if I don't like all of his writing. Make sense? And I do think he makes mistakes from time to time, but one of the things that he and I definitely agree on as, as writers, and he is obviously much, much better at this than I am, is making things believable. He's really big on, well, we could do this, but that doesn't make sense, right? Like, that's not how that should work. So let's try to redo this in a way that's logical. Now, I mention this because we've actually seen in previous episodes, not even that long ago, just how lackluster and, frankly, pathetic the security measures are on Deep Space Nine. In this episode, they are top-notch. And, in fact, the only reason they get away with this is because of the extremely unique circumstance that he happens to basically be William Riker. At least in the sense that all security measures can accommodate for. In fact, this also brings up another point. One of the biggest questions I myself have had and other people have had for the longest time is, why is he so hostile to O'Brien? If you really pay attention to his performance, he kind of rolls with most of the punches pretty smoothly and easily. But he's rolling with the punches. You can see him trying to adapt in order to keep in character as William the entire time. But when he meets O'Brien, he knows O'Brien and, and William T. Riker were friends, were people who worked with each other for years. He can't accommodate that. There's just too many possibilities, too many circumstances by which there might be some way O'Brien says something that he doesn't know or he doesn't know to deal with. So he shuts him down immediately. I have nothing to say to you. I think you know why. And if you think about it, that's such a vague and meaningless statement. Because it is a vague and meaningless statement. He, he barely knows O'Brien. And that's the problem. So he does that very nicely and very smoothly, but otherwise the security pro protocols are, are fantastic. Just to even board the Defiant, you need to go through a security bypass, or you, know, you need to bypass security. In order to even activate the Defiant, you need to go through stuff too. Now that's nice, and I like that. That makes sense for a Federation warship, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I, wouldn't it be ludicrous if a bunch of Ferengi should just suddenly beamed aboard and took over the Enterprise? I mean, that would be insane. What's really funny is this command lockout is something that's basically not really used a lot in Star Trek. You, we could probably sit down and figure out maybe 10-ish times that that kind of security lockout has been used on a starship. <sighs> Anyways, so he gets on board. Woo, takes over. They can't beam through the shields, I pointed out, because it's a plot point. And then they get away with the Defiant. And dun-dun-dun, there's a nice little touch. One of the women turns on and says, good job, Tom. Now, that is there for the fans. We, the audience, who know what's going on, as soon as we hear that, it's like, it's Thomas Riker. In fact, uh, when I first saw this episode, which again, second time through, we're still not to where I came back to the series yet, uh, I was like, it's, it's got to be Tom, it's got to be Thomas Riker because I've got that little Trivial Pursuit brain thing going on, and I know I'm not the only Trekker or Trekkie who does. So, right? I mean, how many of you knew? Like, as soon as he pulled at the phaser and hit her, it's like, oh, it's got to be Thomas. It's got to be something, right? Alien possession or some kind of thing going on. No, it's Thomas. 
And this is an excellent use of familiarity effect. Now, for those of you not aware, I have a lorem called familiarity effect, and the whole point of it is that we as human beings tend to enjoy things that are more familiar to us. That's a excessively simplification of the same same thing, but the point is having Jonathan Frakes playing a Riker on on DS9 is a great idea from an out-of-character perspective and an in-character perspective. In-character, it allows us to examine Thomas Riker's character, which was never done on TNG, and though we won't be there for some time, in fact, we're not even at the episodes and when Thomas Riker was introduced yet, but it is my opinion that they criminally underutilized Thomas Riker over on TNG. They could have done some really good stuff with that, and they totally wasted it. So here they're finally thinking about doing stuff. They totally wasted it here, too, by the way. But here, at least, we can use that character to good effect and bring back a fan-favorite actor. A lot of people like Jonathan Frakes, and for good reason. He is a charming, affable, charismatic guy, and he's kind of a goofball, too. So bringing him back adds that familiarity effect without literally having William Riker join the show. In fact, DS9 will be repeating this trick, except arguably a worse execution of this trick, later on towards the end of Season 3. Uh, or rather, the beginning of season four, but you get what I mean. Anyways, so Ducat sits down and says, "Okay, hang on. So you you've you've got this." And what I love about this is Ducat's analysis of the situation is spot on. Central Command will presume this is a deliberate attempt by the Federation in order to support the Maquis. Why would they presume that? Because that's what the Central Command would do if the tables were reversed. We know there are actual military officers and probably Central Command uh, members of the Cardassian Union that are actively supporting their people who are doing the sabotage on the Federation colonists. We know this. This is a definitive proof, a proven thing. Therefore, they would assume the Federation is doing the same in reverse. This is their way of upping the scales a little bit while trying to avoid war. However, because this is a warship, they will use this as an excuse to send in fleets. Well, the Federation can't deal with that, so they'll send in fleets, too. And then Ducat says, all one person has to do is make one tiny mistake, and tensions are high, and nerves are frayed. One problem, and we have a shooting war. And he's right. And what I love about it is neither Ducat nor Cisco wants that. Now, we got to talk about Ducat briefly. I know we've talked about him a lot. You remember uh, two episodes ago? Uh, Civil Defense where they deliberately wrote Ducat to be mustache-twirlingly evil, to re-emphasize the fact that Ducat is evil. I love how two episodes later we get back to a Ducat who is far more gray and nuanced. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> just, nobody can seem to decide what the hell they want to do on Star Trek. It, it's true for every show of Star Trek. Um he has the. I, I, I just can do nothing but gush. I really can do nothing but gush about everything about Ducat and the Order Woman and Cisco's interactions. It's all great character stuff. Um, him sitting there, oh, I'm sorry, yes, I was thinking about my son's birthday. It's his 11th birthday, and I promised I'd take him, and I won't be able to. And, and his line about, you know, when, when my son looks back, he, he won't look back with understanding. He will look back with hatred, and that's sad. That's a powerful line, a powerful scene, and it adds some wonderful nuance to the character. Ducat is not a good guy. He is, in fact, a villain, but at the moment, he is our ally, and he acts like it appropriately. And it's a nice way to see that there is more to him than just the guy who happens to be against us. 
as I've said before, just because you add layers to a character does not mean you are whitewashing them. It doesn't mean they're suddenly a good guy. It means they have layers to them. You know, the, the, the Bloody Baron is probably actually one of my favorite examples of this over in The Witcher 3. Uh, no particular spoilers, but they did a lot to flesh out and add to his character. Doesn't make him a good person. They just did a lot to add to and flesh out his character. Anyways. So, of course, the Order and Dukat are basically constantly bickering. Lots of pol politicking and infighting going on there, which is lovely stuff. They do some good politics in this episode, and that's actually probably one of my favorite aspects of the episode, if I might take an aside. Because we have four factions at play here. We've got the Obsidian Order, we've got the Cardassian Military, who, and then we've got Starfleet, and then we've got the Maquis. Now, all of these factions are playing off of each other. The Maquis... Well, I'm going to go with the original intent because I like the idea. The Maquis have basically started finally winning because they finally have a general who's actually giving them real tactical expertise and real leadership. That's Thomas Riker. Quick aside, just really, really quick. This is basically spoilers, but all I'm going to say is that there is a certain Starfleet officer who becomes a, the leader of the Maquis in the future, and I think it was always supposed to be Riker. I bet some of you know what I'm talking about. Again, I'm, I'm avoiding names here for the sake of spoilers. I don't feel like pulling down the spoilers uh, icon. But I really feel like that was that character was always supposed to be Riker. And I feel like it fits a lot better with his character and his character arc. Anyways, <clears throat> so Riker is now leading... Excuse me, I should call him Thomas to make it more clear. Thomas is now leading the Maquis to a level of com competency that they've never been at before. This means the military is being more and more pushed to deal with them. The Order, well, they're doing their own thing. Now, they, they're a little bit too overt in this episode. It's probably one of my only complaints about the writing, is the Order gives away far too much. But they give away that there's something in the... They give away the fact that they know about the cloak. That was a nice touch. They give away that there's something in that system, and they give away that there is a buildup of Keldon ships in there, which are augmented from normal ships. Now, that is interesting in its own right, but it does show how the Order is kind of playing at their own games. Thus, Starfleet, who's kind of stuck in the middle of these three factions, is able to use all three factions against each other. The Maquis gets the intel on the Order to be given to the military to get the ship back to Starfleet. It's a nice little balance. It's, it's not something super complex or super, you know, Machiavellian or whatever, but it's a nice political game back and forth. In fact, funnily enough, if not for the Order and the infighting between the Order and the military, Sisko would have never gotten the Defiant back. The Defiant would have been destroyed. That was the whole point. Which brings me to another small point, and I want you to keep this in mind. With, I think, and I could be wrong, one other exception, this is the largest fleet size we ever see in Star Trek. Uh, to date. To date. Obviously, there will be larger later. Because usually, ships in Star Trek, for whatever reason, is like three. Sometimes five. In the episode, uh, The Defector, TNG, there are, oh, excuse me, uh, six, a grand total, or no, wait, three, four, yeah, I'm right, six, there are a grand total of six ships involved in that engagement, two Romulan, three Klingon, one Federation. That's it. That's, that's my point. Star Trek has always had this thing with fleets and, and ship engagements being really, really small. Deep Space Nine is the the one time they really tried to push that envelope. They did this later as well. Voyager would push the envelope as well out, and so would Enterprise. But D uh, until DS9, the biggest fleet we ever saw was at Wolf 359. Remember, we didn't actually see that fleet. The first time we ever saw the fleet at Wolf 359, 
was in Deep Space Nine during Emissary. They reshot footage. Uh, they made new footage of the Wolf, the Battle at Wolf Three Five Nine, specifically to showcase that. So this is kind of a small little historic note, and it is important because of things that are going to come. So please do me a favor and remember this, that we have this engagement with, I think, like 14 ships. I, f- I forget. It's like 9, and then 5, uh, and then... So there's actually 15 ships, excuse me, because the Define is there as well. That's actually kind of cool, and to me, makes more sense. I'm not saying we have to need fleets of hundreds of thousands of ships, but it has always bothered me how most engagements in Star Trek up to this point in time have involved one ship, maybe two, on, a, on any given side. Like, that's always been a thing that's bothered me for some reason. It's, it's hard to explain why. Anyways, so, um, I talked about the politics stuff, and it's awesome. This is also another uh, landmark moment as well, because this is when they introduced quantum torpedoes. Now, the idea of quantum torpedoes existed before this, and canonically there are earlier ships that use quantum torpedoes, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we actually see it on camera. And, I mean, what else are you going to say? They're, they're torpedoes with quantum in the name. They've got to be better, right? Side note, I love using quantum torpedoes in STO. That's my favorite torpedo type. Anywho, so they've got their military uh, secret things. You know, the, the Obsidian Order isn't even allowed to have military ships. I can't even imagine the kind of political fallout that this episode had. It probably forced certain people to advance their plans quicker, though, I'd imagine. Again, keep that in mind in the back of your head. The last thing to talk about, though, here is Thomas Riker. Now, his character arc is so obvious, they actually say it outright in the episode, so I don't really feel the need to cover that. I must be myself and go out in a blaze of glory. Just saying. There's an episode on DS9 named Blaze of Glory. But what I find to be more accurate here is that this isn't just him trying to identify as his own self. I I, I can't believe that. I can't think it's that one-dimensional. I really do legitimately believe that Thomas Riker sees this and wants to help. And you know why I think that? Because I think William Riker looked at this and wanted to help. But William Riker is entrenched. He has a long-standing, venerated career, and he is career Starfleet. And so the idea of just abandoning all that is something that he just can't quite bring himself to do, not with his degree of loyalty and his adherence to the, the, the stricture of law, basically. But Thomas Riker, he's a lieutenant. And he has no career to speak of. In fact, anything he does career-wise is automatically compared against William Riker. So, he doesn't have as much holding him back. He doesn't have some great loved one who's out waiting in the wings for him. He doesn't have his career, and he doesn't have his investment in basically anyone. So all he has left is his morality. I think Thomas Riker legitimately believes in the Maquis cause. That is just my opinion, and I don't have a lot of backing to that, other than the future comments I made earlier. So, it is worth noting, they do some good stuff with him in this episode. I mean, obviously, Jonathan Frakes is awesome, and Cliff Bull is awesome, and Ronald D. Moore is awesome. We've we've got an awesome triad going on here. But, I like how he really does operate like a general in charge of an army of a nation. Because that's what he's trained to do. That is how he thinks. He is the commander. He is not a terrorist, as Kira points out. He is not someone who is just here to hurt the other side. He is actively trying to obtain military-grade victories. And that's probably why he hatched the entire plan to get the Defiant to begin with. Because it would allow them to do things that otherwise they simply wouldn't be able to. That being said, Moore's knowledge of tactics and strategy seemed to be a little bit lacking. I wish he had brought in someone who was a little more cognizant or capable, tactically speaking, because his final tactics, Riker's, 
are dumb. Just just to be as nice as I can about it. Now, you could argue that that was part of the suicidal nature of it. I don't buy that. I don't buy it. I think it was more like he should have been more tactically capable, but because of crap upon crap upon crap, he's backed into a corner, and now he has to accept the best possible outcome. I think they could have restructured a few bits of the episode to make that more clear. Then he kisses Kira. This is right at the end of the episode. This is going to sound like a dumb question, but why does Thomas Riker kiss Kira? Please keep in mind that Kira is currently and actively in a relationship with Vedic Burial, and don't that's not just some kind of hidden, you know, tiny little bit of lore in the canon. That's actually something that's brought up in this episode. And as I mentioned earlier, and I told you to remember this, the three of the three of them, the two of them talked for 3 hours and just talked. Why does there need to be a romantic entanglement to that? If you really want him to show affection, have him kiss her on the cheek or maybe on the forehead. You know, something like that. Forehead wouldn't have worked. I take that back. But cheek would have worked. Or have her kiss him on the forehead. That would have worked. I'll get you out. You know, something like that. Show the affection. Show the friendship, the camaraderie. Don't tilt it into the romantic angle. I actively don't agree with that. Now, let's talk about the, the elephant in the room. Hey, Bob, what's going No, I'm kidding. Why did Thomas Riker never come back? I don't know. I have spent so much time just in the preparation of this episode trying to research why the hell Thomas Riker didn't come back. I have known for years the answer I'm going to give you, but I but it's not an answer. It was just, no, we don't want more Thomas Riker. I'll go a little bit more into detail into that, but that's the answer. They just didn't want more Thomas Riker, so we didn't get more Thomas Riker. He was always intended to come back. And again, I really, really feel like a certain future character I keep avoiding the naming of was supposed to be him. It slides in so neatly to that character arc. I cannot imagine why the DS9 just has this hatred of recurring characters. It's a thing, I'm telling you. It just keeps being a thing that Deep Space Nine doesn't want to have recurring characters. Look at this. Look at it. You have a recurring character. Bam! He's, he's even free. He's not working on TNG anymore. I mean, you brought on frickin' Worf. Anyways, anyways. So for whatever reason... They just said no, and he, his story went away. Now, I know he had stuff in the books. I, I understand that, but god damn it. This is, just, this is getting frustrating. How many opportunities for recurring characters keep showing up and then getting thrown out the window. But let me explain what I mean by they. I was not able to define they. In fact, to this day, I'm not 100% sure who it is that said no more Thomas Riker. The usual answer is the producers, but that's a generic phrase that doesn't actually mean anything. Um, this could have been Ira Stephen Bear, this could have been Michael Piller, and this could have been Rick Berman. Those are the three biggest names that are most likely the ones to say, no more Thomas Riker. However, I have never been able to find an interview or any kind of question from any of those three people specifically about this point. And I looked. I'm not saying I looked at everything, because obviously not every single you know convention for the last 20 years has been documented, but... I wasn't able to find anything. If you guys have any more information, please feel free to share. But here's how television works. Or I should say more accurately worked back in the day. Every so often, a studio will release... Um, <coughs> excuse me. 
a list of guidelines. And these guidelines are what you can do, what you can't do, and general direction for new scripts and ideas. Now this isn't really for the writing room. This is for other people who are interested in, in writing scripts and mailing them in and selling them to the studio. As I've talked about before, most of television production at the time, most of television design and writing at the time, was such that the studio would have tons and tons of scripts just ready to go, that people would constantly write and, and send in, and then occasionally some of them would be used for the actual show, right? That, that was a normal procedure. So this list, therefore, is the stuff that we don't want to see anything on this list. Like, don't even try. We're not going to give you any money or any, any rights or any, anything if you send in something with this on it. And one of the things on that list was Thomas Riker. That's how bad this was. They mandated that they would not spend money on scripts that included Thomas Riker. What? Again, I have no idea which of the three principal producers actually made that directive. Or maybe all of them did. Or maybe some of them did. I don't know. <sighs> I did enjoy this episode. Really, I did. In fact, the only thing I don't enjoy about this episode is that, just like any old episode of Twilight Zone, it will never matter again. Actually, that's not true. There's actually a really big plot point in this episode, which will matter a lot in the future. But, nevertheless, I did find myself enjoying it. It was certainly a nice break from Meridium. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.